This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. And we are live. First weekly roundup of 2022. What's going on, my friend? How we doing, Santi? Happy New Year. I'm, I miss your shining face today. GM, GM, sir. Doing well without video, so apologies. Um, you know, we can't get, we still can't get uh, audio video right in 2022, folks. But, uh, you know, this is my fault and I will make up for it in the next episode. I promise. You're, you're so sketchy. You're like in an area with little Wi-Fi, like starting the year. Uh, but I'm excited. I don't know what you're going to do to make up up for this, uh, but, it, but it has to be good. Like it can't just be some like, you know, on Mike's show, he always does these nice looking socks. We've got to do something actually. Uh, you got to go all out for the audience here. All right, well, let's jump in. Um, we got to, honestly, I'm nervous for this episode. We got a lot to cover um, to start the year. Uh, a couple big things that we're going to be talking about. First things first, just the market getting walloped. Um, I am happy that the market is getting walloped. Um, I think for a lot of people over the last several months, uh, they haven't actually seen a market get hit pretty badly. And there's some people who honestly came in in the last six months. So I think it's time for them to uh, earn their stripes a little bit, right? This is when you earn your stripes in crypto. So I want to get your take on what's going on, why this is happening, how long this will last, uh, that kind of stuff. Second thing, uh, we'll move into the L1 wars. Uh, a couple updates I want to get your take on. Uh, just with L1 stuff. So we'll talk about that. Third is the curve wars. If you don't know what the curve wars, we're going to go pretty deep, um, give you a high level, but then actually go into kind of the weeds of what's going on with the curve wars. If you don't know what the curve wars are, definitely stick around for that. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, covering just different options vaults. This is something early uh, that's starting to happen. These options vaults are getting really, really popular. Uh, and so we're going to kind of give you a high level on that. After moving through that, uh, we will talk about some of the big news pieces of the week, DeFi stuff, NFT stuff, institutional stuff, fun little grab bag, look at some top tweets and get on out of here. So yeah, I mean, I'm. this isn't honestly that interesting to me, like Bitcoin fell 10% and uh, or 15%, whatever it is, ETH, kind of similar amount, maybe a little bit more. Um, what I found interesting with this was actually the things that did well, right? Pretty much the entire market sold off like 5 to 15%. The things that have done well, Adam up like 30% uh, in the last 30 days, uh, Phantom, FTM up like 30% in the last 30 days, Near is doing well, it's up like 5, 10% in the last 30 days, right? These are the only things that are, also I think Chainlink is up uh, just because it's Chainlink, uh, right? But the only things that are up like 5, 10, 20, some even 30% uh, month over month are some of these L1s that are not the L1s that were popular last year. What do you make of this? No, look, I mean, I think this year, we, we ended the year with a lot of strength. I think a lot of people increasingly are very aware. We talk about fundraising rounds from, from large funds that haven't been involved in crypto. I still continue to believe that, you know, we are in, in, in a, in a awareness kind of awakening of this asset class from investors, from consumers that are touching NFTs and brands. I mean, I think this is, I don't see anything that has changed, right? As an investor, you always say, okay, what has actually changed, right? To meaningfully justify maybe cutting your exposure to this asset class. And I don't think anything fundamentally has changed. I, I continue to see a lot of strength. We're going to touch on this in the episode around fundraising rounds and, and um, you know, collaborations and traction of these. And I think this year, 
is going to be the year of where where crypto continues to be widely used. And the emphasis here is used. I think when a technology starts getting used, that really, we, we stop being just purely a speculative asset class and an asset class that has functionality and utility. Yeah. I mean, just talking about the sell-off one more time, like, does this feel like something that's a prolonged sell-off? Uh, we move kind of further down here. What, what, what are you looking at? These are solid networks, I think. Um, I don't kind of understand his take of boomers. A lot of market participants are still in Bitcoin and haven't even considered Ethereum, haven't even considered, uh, you know, larger networks. Forget about Avalunex or like Flamingo. I mean, this is just for the very, very, you know, as we say, deep in the rabbit hole kind of market participants, which is a small, I think continues to be a relatively small subset of the broader crypto market. But um, no, I uh, I get where he's coming from, but um, I don't, if, if he is suggesting, you tell me that, um, you know, something like Luna, Solana and Avalanche is, you know, are not going to continue to see a lot of traction, then I don't kind of, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, so, um, you know, I, th- there would be folks out there that would say like Solana, okay, is, may not see, obviously a lot of those networks have seen a lot of uh, price appreciation. It's been, you know, I, can that continue into this year? Unlikely, right? Just if you sort of like think of a mean reversion, all this stuff. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's where it's coming at. Hmm. All right, we'll 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 uh we'll keep that on the, on the docket. Maybe add that to the narrative list to watch. Um, I'll, let's get into just rotation in different alts. Uh, there's this take uh, from this guy Money with Carter. If you guys don't follow Money with Carter, really good, uh, really good follow on Twitter. Just a really good human being. Um, he wrote these uh, this Q1 2022 thesis. Basically said things are about to get a little wild. One of the main things that he talked about was uh, he uh, Salunavax was really hot in 2021, right? Solana, Luna, and and AVAX, right? Salunavax, he calls it. In 2022, he talks about it, uh, you know, the L1 narrative moving to what he calls Flamingo. Flam, Ingo, Flamingo. Uh, It's Phantom, Luna, uh, Adam, and Matic. Uh, And as he puts it, he says, Salunavax is for the boomers. Flamingo is the new narrative. Sprinkle in a little near Adam one if you're feeling fancy. Yeah. I mean, here, here's my take on this is I think that the, uh, instead of talking about like, uh, Phantom and Luna and, uh, Adam and Matic and things like that, I think the take here is that, um, we're still early on, on in the L1 stuff, uh, in these quote unquote L1 wars, because there's really, when you're talking about like Flamingo versus this Salunavax thing, there's, it's so obvious there's no clear winner that everyone's basically chasing what they think will be the next 10x or the next 100x, right? In like traditional markets, uh, there's no narrative. Like you don't go start, at some point there was the narrative like, okay, there are 12 different search engines and everyone's putting money into all the different search engines. And at a certain point in time, it became the clear became very clear to the market that Google is the winner and everyone moves the money out of all those search engines and just dumps it into, into Google. Right. And like today it'd be, you would never even think about saying like, okay, like the, 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 uh, the search wars are heating up, right. Everyone just puts their money into Google. To me, there's no clear, uh, there's this, this just makes it abundantly clear that there's no one winner and there's no consensus and there's no, yeah, everyone's still in just the, the mode that they're chasing the new thing. So, um, a little bit of interesting data here uh, that I pulled up on Phantom just because I've been trying to dig into some of these other L1s. Phantom has about a million and a half addresses, about the same as Avalanche. 
they also have developer activity on par with Matic and Luna, uh, quickly approaching AVAX. Uh, Stablecoin growth on Phantom is accelerating. Um, yeah, you talked about Daniel and Andre, two of the top developers in the industry, are spearheading uh, FTM's DeFi revival. So, yeah, we'll see. And then on the other side, right, Solana's uh, wallet, Phantom, hit about a million, 1.8 million users at the end of last year, um, obviously aiming for higher. Interesting quote from Dan Moorhead about Terra, uh, saying Terra is one of the most promising coins for the coming year. So, yeah, I think this is uh, just symbolic of the fact that nobody really has picked an L1 winner yet. Um, cool. Moving on from that, I think uh, the biggest thing that I'm paying attention to is just these curve wars. So I'm going to give an overview on for folks who don't know what the curve wars is. This might take a minute or two. Kind of the TLDR, without going too deep, is the simple explanation, if you want to zone me out for the next two minutes, is many of the biggest DeFi stablecoin buyers in the world are focused really heavily on a uh, accumulating CRV right now. So they have the best rewards pools. Um, the the important thing to know though, is that, so Cur what is Curve? Curve is a market maker for crypto stable coins, basically similar to market makers in uh, CeFi and TradFi. They help keep the system running smoothly. Curve has become really the best AMM for stable coins because of their ability to keep the stables pegged to a dollar, right? That's what AMMs for stables are supposed to do. Uh, they also have pretty low fees, actually really low fees, which is obviously a huge incentive for users who are growing tired of these absurdly high fees on different uh, centralized exchanges. Um, that's kind of like what is Curve. When we get into the token element of things, Santi, so Curve is, uh, Curve's native token, CRV, is a liquidity incentive. You might want to get out a pen and paper. There might be some different tokens coming out here. The native token CRV is a liquidity incentive. Basically, it's given to users who deposit funds and kind of preserve that sanctity of the stable swaps, right? For every trade that occurs on Curve, the users who deposit the, fun the funds, aka the liquidity providers, earn a percentage of the fees in the form of CRV tokens. So what do you need to know? Curve is the number one place for stablecoin swaps. Uh, these users, the LPs, earn CRV tokens. Here's where it gets interesting though. Once you earn CRV, you can vote lock your token, which gives you even more CRV. You also get VE CRV. Sounds complicated. Really, it's just vote escrowed curve tokens. VE CRV isn't just another LP token. It's a governance token. This is important because you can use it to vote on important curve decisions. Given curves influence and power in the markets, these VE CRV tokens have become powerful, right? Kind of like Dune, if you've read or seen Dune, uh, Frank Herbert, he who controls uh, the spice controls the universe, right? Uh, the spice in DeFi has kind of become these VE CRV tokens. Uh, the holders uh, of these Actually, I'll skip the skip this next part about holders. Uh, basically, the goal, what do you need to know? The goal of these DeFi and stablecoin players right now is to make your coin or your protocol number one. Having an influence over Curve has become very, very important. So that's kind of what is Curve. That's a little bit about the tokens. What are the Curve Wars? What's happening now is these DeFi protocols are competing to accumulate CRV in order to influence decision-making uh, in a way that will benefit them the most. So convex finance kind of entered the game, uh, and kind of kicked off these curve wars, right? They created a really simple model for obtaining more VE CRV, right? What do people want to do? They want to make more money. What 
convex allowed you to do to do is you stake your crv on convex so you can get uh cvx crv just you can just ignore that for a sec which is a token with no voting rights but with slightly better yield opportunities and with cvx rewards uh cvx is convex um this enabled convex to just gobble up, gobble up massive amounts of this ve crv again the curve voting token uh and as of this podcast or at least as of yesterday uh, Convex owns nearly 50% of the circulating supply of CRV. So they own basically 50% of these voting tokens. Um, enter Yearn into this. Yearn uh, has created a vault, which basically gives CRV depositors the opportunity to earn an, uh, a much higher yield than they'd obturn, uh, obtain on Curve. So they too gobbled up a lot of the voting weight, right? Then, then okay, so now we've got like Convex versus Yearn. Then this gets interesting. Yearn gave up 23 million uh, voting escrow CRV tokens, VECRV, to Convex while retaining the voting rights. Okay, so now this, what this did is it aligned Yearn with Convex, right? You got some allies, you got crypto allies, crypto DeFi allies with Yearn and Convex in these curve wars. Uh, and then you got some other players who entered the game, Olympus Dow, Frax, Wonderland. They all entered this quote unquote war trying to accumulate um, Convex's token, CVX, in order to inevitably acquire governance. Anyway, Santi, super interesting. Uh, as of Tuesday, about 86% of the token's $3 billion supply is locked up in various DeFi protocols. This is an insane trend, in my opinion, of you know protocol scooping up these governance tokens. I, I really just want to get your take on, on what you make of these curve wars. This is a great summary. I think there's two observations here. One, um, I, I've always felt the curve is one of if not the primary backbone of DeFi, in the sense that a lot of the yield of crv um, trickles into DeFi, and so it is a very important metric uh um you know it, it can be DeFi can be very reflexive but it is the backbone right because a lot of strategies for instance in yearn tap into curve uh as a primary source of yield generation and then you stack yield right by tapping into other different protocols um like ave and uh you know synthetics and a few other protocols right but the very basic one and the kind of the backbone of this is curve and so you always want to be looking at the yield of crv and the price of crv in particular as a as a barometer of where DeFi is um and and so i think it underpins and emphasizes the importance of curve and so the second observation is there has been over the last, you know, ever since DeFi came around, this idea of a governance token and why and why, why it's important has been put into question over time. Uh, and now I think you're seeing a very interesting um, dynamic here where protocols are competing for acquiring governance rights in some of these protocols. And you might say, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because if you're a stable coin, if you're Frax, for instance, well, you're also competing against DAI, which is Maker's stablecoin. You're also competing against other type of stablecoins in the market, Olympus and a few others, right? And so you, how do you position yourself? It's all a matter of you want to have enough voting uh, power to divert incentives that can be put up as a governance proposal towards your particular pool of, a, 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 a in this case, a stablecoin pool. So if you're Frax, you might say, hey, look, if we have more voting power, then we have the ability to influence where incentives are going to be diverted and fees to, to nudge users to use Frax stablecoin versus some other stablecoin in the market, right? And so 
I think it's um, it is an interesting dynamic. I think it's going to continue to persist. Uh, Curve Wars is the first, but it won't be the last um, of of these kind of you know competition amongst protocols looking to influence governance decisions. We talked in a prior episode of how guilds um, might also get into this comp- competitive environment to control um, governance or try to exert as much influence in the underlying game governance like Axie or Illuvium, right, to favor their guild. And so that might be another way this manifests itself over time where increasingly governance rights are very, very valuable for protocols to, to, you know, to get more visibility. I think of it very simplistically. This is just, the analogy would be <clears throat> users are coming into the space. It's all about incentives. The more governance rights you have, and you can divert more attention to your protocol, you're going to do everything in your power to do that. And so this trend is definitely a narrative that we should continue to watch. Is there an analogy to make here, Santi, to uh, almost curve being the Fed? Uh, and like, you know, the Fed sets sets these, like the most important kind of number in DeFi is, uh, is the curve yield, is the yield on curve because that trickles into all of the different protocols. Um, and, and I guess you could even extend that analogy further. It's like the, you know, the more CRV that you own, the more votes you have to control how much money each reward pool gets. And that's being called like the gauge, right? And the gauge is kind of like the money printer, right? So communities are buying you know, millions of dollars worth of CRV every day so that they can have control of this money printer. And the ones with control will simply point this money printer at their favorite holdings so they can sit back and collect this top tier yield and then eventually have more power in DeFi, right? Correct. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. I've always felt, the only thing I would say is I've always felt that the staking yield on on the, on like, and if you were a proof of stake chain, right? The staking yield is probably the risk-free rate and everything else on top of that needs to be higher than that by default. But yes, Curve is the, let's just call it the backbone here of the, the, the fund, the, the, the Fed funds rate, if you will, or the, you know, the, the rate by which banks lend to each other in traditional markets. But yes, I, I think it's a great analogy. Is this, I mean, are we going to be seeing, are we going to see a lot more of this this year? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is just the beginning of a mega trend where, you know, I've always felt governance rights are no different than the ability to have a lot of stock ownership and be able to determine which board of directors and governance decisions. And look, there's proxy wars in traditional markets. This is no different in my estimation, right? But is this like, um, you know, when I think about like an activist investor, like a Bill Ackman, right? He's, he's an individual with a fund. What this feels like to me is a little bit different, which is, um, is like companies buying other company shares. So instead of Bill Ackman gobbling up a bunch of like, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't do this, but like Google shares, uh, this would it's more like Apple gobbling up a bunch of Google shares. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, it's in this case is a protocol, right? Uh, but the the intention is exactly the same, which is influence decision making of these protocols um, that have a very direct impact into the success of a stablecoin or some other protocol that is can be diverted incentives and so yeah it's um it's no different the interesting thing here is though the ability to actually have an impact in the underlying protocol right you know in a year's time from now it it will be interesting to look back and say how successful was this bribing how successful was maybe frax was the protocol that accumulated 
or Olympus that was protocol that accumulated or convex or whatever got the most amount of voting power. And how did that, you know, obviously there's correlation causation, but how did that manifest itself over the year? And, and, and was did this become the most important stable coin because they were able to get the most amount of voting power and curve. And then that, you know, had a direct impact in, into the incentives for users to use that stable coin. And then all of a sudden it became the de facto stable coin in DeFi. Like, I mean, if that ends up being true, it's, I think it's too early to tell, but, um, I would, from a go-to-market perspective, if you're a new stablecoin project, now you constantly need to be thinking about how are we going to compete against someone like Brax or someone like, um, you know, Olympus that have much more muscle from a governance decision standpoint in the protocol that matters most in this case, Curve. And it's it's it, we always struggle with what are the modes of open source networks. That's that's something that. A lot of investors, it's, it's a hard question, candidly, when fork is, code is easily forkable, community is not so much, teams and talent not so much. But nonetheless, I mean, I think you have, uh, okay, Sushi was a reasonably successful, I still think is, um, fork of Uniswap. Um, certainly has hiccups recently, but it, it leaves you sort of wondering what are the moats in these open source networks? And I think one of them increasingly has become the ability to influence governance uh, from other protocols in this composable universe, right? Um, for folks who want to dive in, I would recommend, uh, I can we can put some stuff in the show notes. Token Bryce had a more technical thing on this. Uh, there's also this guy who's, I don't know who he is, but his name is just The Knower. Um, he's got a good sub stack and a good Twitter account. Um, and I use a lot of his stuff for this. So I would recommend both of those. I can put the, the links in the show notes. Options vaults. I want to just call out these options vaults because I feel like they've been kind of some of the smart money is talking about them. Uh, they're getting a lot of investor interest right now. Um, I just want to kind of give an, uh, an overview on like what they are and get your takes on them. So kind of first things first is like options, right? Like the beauty of options is that you can earn this passive income, whether it's a bull or a bear market, right? Depending on how you play it. And with crypto, options have been made even simpler because users can simply just deposit money into these so-called vaults, right? And earn this like 30% plus yield on their covered calls or, you know, cash secured puts, right? You're basically tokenizing uh, the yield and you can then take that token and farm with it and earn even higher rewards, right? So uh, I think what's happening and like... Uh, uh, these these options vaults have grown exponentially, right? So some data I'm looking at here, they become uh, they have become the dominant part of the $700 million DeFi option TVL. Um, and really what you're doing is you're just staking your assets into these vaults, which and then the vaults deploy the assets into different option strategies. So you might put your money into like a covered call strategy. Uh, and before this, like option strategies were really only uh, executed are available to these accredited investors, right? Through like OTC trading or self-execution on options uh, exchanges like Deribit and LedgerX. Uh, and right now the strategies are, you know, they're kind of like vanilla. They're like covered calls and cash covered puts, uh, which provide like, I don't know, 15, 30, 35% yield. Uh, and then on top of that, these token rewards are often distributed, which provide an even higher yield for the users. So, uh, and you know, some big ones just to call out uh, a couple ones. Ribbon, uh, some of these have tokens, some don't. Ribbon, Ribbon has a token. DopeX has a token. OPYN, Opin, I forget how you pronounce it. Uh, Friction Labs, which full full transparency, I'm an investor in. I think Santi might be as well. Lira, Theta Knots, Katana, Zeta Markets. So there's something 
interesting that's happening here. And I just wanted to get your take on these options vaults. Yeah, I think we, uh, it's been, options has been one of the areas of DeFi that hasn't really taken off um, for two reasons. I think one is it is quite expensive. Um, it is from a computational standpoint, I think just options, pricing options has been quite expensive. You compare against like buying options in Deribit, obviously centralized, obviously not all users can use it. I think that, which leads me to my second one, which is using options is fairly esoteric. Uh, it's not for everyone. It requires a deep working knowledge of, of, of how these instruments work. They can be really efficient from a hedging perspective um, and to really amplify returns in your portfolio, just manage risk. The problem is it requires a fairly decent uh, and advanced level of knowledge of finance. Uh, and so a lot of users don't know how to use it, right? And so the, the folks that are able to use it and want to deploy these strategies probably are just going to something like Deribit, which is a centralized solution for some of these exchanges like FTX to express the same view. Um, but now, I mean, I think generally users are interested and compelled by the, the, the ability to use options and enhance their portfolio. Um, and I think it requires something that is kind of more cookie cutter, more out of the box strategies like Frickton is doing um, to to get more usage uh, and, and make it just easier for users to, to start using these. Uh, Frickton, for example, I think is being deployed in Solana, which is, you know, a uh, higher throughput, perhaps cheaper environment to do this type of uh, constant rebalancing and just pricing of these option um, instruments. Yeah. Yeah. You've kind of, you're seeing these options vaults deployed across all the ecosystems, right? Like Solana's got Katana, Friction, Tap, Polygon's got Siren, Avalanche has Aero Markets, uh, Stake DAO, which uh, operates on, on Ethereum. Yeah. My take on this, Santi, is um, I think they're really interesting. Um, and I think that uh, it's going to be a massive market. And I think just options on top of these different ecosystems, especially Solana, is going to be huge in 2022. The counterpoint to this, though, is that uh, whenever you say like the democratization of something, like the democratization of finance and the democratization of investing, like oftentimes what this leads to is uh, institutions making more money on the backs of retail, uh, getting better access to things, but getting completely wrecked. Uh, so I don't know when you think about like the de quote unquote democratization of these options, like what's the downside here? What, what What's the risk for retail uh, that they're maybe not seeing? It's a very, it's a very interesting uh, observation, Jason, because I, I think you're right. Uh, not everyone should be doing it themselves. You know, uh, not everyone should be going levered long a hundred X, even if you can. Right. And so um, look, Consumer choice and preference and benefit is is what DeFi is bringing to the masses. Um, but we have to balance that out. Uh, you know, are people ready to use options? No, I think they need some handholding. And this is where a lot of where I talk to founders and teams is like, guys, like we need to remember that, you know, you need to kind of nudge the user and make it very easy. There's a big education piece to DeFi that that is underemphasized. And and we as an industry should continue to raise a level of awareness, right? Because it, I'd be remiss not to say the flow usually is people come into this space from a speculative angle. You know, they see people maybe true or not be very successful. And so they want to chase that and there's FOMO. And and then, you know, they, they might follow folks on Twitter and say, oh, I can go 100x long. And, you know, if you give people that opportunity and that ability, a few, you know, a few of them will take up on that. But, you know, there is an element where you could potentially 
get wrecked, as we say, right? Uh, you get liquidated. You you and so I don't know what the right answer is. It's sort of it's an ethical dilemma of <clears throat> is there? I I think there is always a fine balance between more choice paired with education is important, but without education, more choice can sometimes have these side effects that are not so nice, right? And we we see them, right? Uh, you look at the funding rate of Bybit, you look at, you just know that people are going very, very levered long in a very volatile asset class. That is just, you know, is asking for trouble, right? You will be liquidated if you go 100x in a volatile asset class. You know, a day like yesterday or today where the market's down 10%, you, you, are, unle- you are levered, then, <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of, let's just put it this way. This asset class rewards patience and rewards a long-term, like, mindset. Right. Um, And so options are very interesting instruments. Um, And so I I think this is why I think, as you pointed out, it is probably 90 plus percent of this market is better off going to a strategy that is composed of vault like friction, friction or some of the other provided ribbon or, or what have you. Why? Because you're giving your money to a sophisticated strategist that know how these things work right as opposed to you trying to do do this at home you know some things it's like it's like that bill nye video it's like kids don't try this at home like i think options is definitely in that category right uh so uh just that's my opinion yeah i mean we'll see how these play out so all right, guys, we are uh, moving into the news section. We've got some interesting stuff. First, we're going to look at the electric capital dev report, uh, then some DeFi news, NFT news, uh, and then some big institution institutional news that happened in the last couple of days. Before we do that, I uh, need to give a big shout out to Permissionless uh, event coming up May 17th through 19th in Palm Beach, Blockworks' big event of the year. Uh, we just added a couple new speakers. Big shout out to Jai from Rari, who's going to be coming to talk about uh, the Rari and Fay protocol merge, multi-billion dollar DeFi merger, uh, one of the highest profile, maybe the highest profile Dow to Dow mergers ever. Um, tickets right now are $732. They go up to $841 on January 15th. So get your tickets before they uh, go up in price. And as always, Santi speaking. We'll be recording some episodes there, but maybe we'll do something special of the diehard users of the podcast. We may, may issue NFTs or something about that. I don't know. I'm, 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 we, we can do something special there. I mean, here's here's a. I'll give you a little. I'll give a, a little alpha leak here. Santi is actually. We are working. We are going to drop permissionless NFTs, uh, and we are going to do something for the uh, folks who have bought tickets uh, early. So, ooh, ooh. yeah, there's the alpha leak. Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones. AMM knockoffs and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche, 
for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Uh, before you turn off this podcast, let's get into the fun stuff. Electric Capital. Oh my God, this dev report. How good is this thing? This is, this is, if there is one piece of content that I don't want to miss each year is this. So uh, shout out to Maria and Avichal and the rest of the team. I think this is one of the more fantastic, one of the higher quality reports that you can look at in the industry. They've done an extensive job of like looking at GitHub activity. It's not perfect science, but I think in isolation, just looking at commits and activity can be misleading. There's no really kind of easy way to do this. So they've come up with a very robust methodology. I think I've poked around the numbers uh, way back in the day, just looking at like emerging protocols. I think they have the best uh, report. We always talk about developer activity being one of the primary proxies of uh, and, le- and indicators of where this movement is going. Human capital is number one, right? And and I think if you look at these reports over time, you can glean a lot of insights from them as opposed to just reading it in isolation. I mean, it's a very comprehensive report, but I think it's, you go back, I think they've been doing this for the last couple of years. And so it's it's one of the, the really interesting pieces of content uh, in this space. Right. I tried to pull out the most important slides from this entire deck. First one, 18,400 monthly active developers in Web3. This hit an all-time high just last month in December of 2021. Uh, If you look at the chart right here, uh, really it ran up to around from like 2,000 monthly active devs to about 10,000 monthly active devs uh, after the 2017 market uh, ran up. Then we kind of flatlined around 10,000 to 12,000 for a couple of years, for about three years there. And then in this last bull run, uh, we have absolutely spiked from what is this about ten thousand active monthly active devs to we're sitting at eighteen thousand four hundred monthly active devs seventy up seventy five percent from the start of last year so this is I think one of the most important charts here yeah absolutely one one other thing is just like unsurprisingly uh, the developer activity grows with the price um, that's kind of not that surprising. Something that is a bit surprising that they pointed out is the monthly active developers peaks after the peak prices. Um, last time the devs, the monthly active devs peaked a full 12 months after the price. Uh, and most surprisingly, I think the overall devs stayed flat while the price collapsed. So uh, what, basically what this is saying is like incoming devs kind of balance the churn in the bear markets. And so uh, if you look at this chart, as the network fell 83% from the peak in the 2018, uh, 2019 kind of downturn, the developer number stayed flat. So that's really encouraging in my, in my opinion. Uh, and I think the main thing to look at here is like, if the market stayed flat for the next year, you know, God forbid it does that because it makes things pretty damn boring. Uh, the developers, the number of developers who have come in, I mean, we've got nearly 20,000 developers working every single month in this space. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I think, uh, one of the, one of the stats that I would always highlight to folks, and this was true, I think, two years ago, was that at that point, Ethereum um, was the largest or very, coming very close to surpassing Linux as the largest open source developer community, I believe, or Apache. I think I think that was true back then. And, you know, it's remarkable, right? When you... I think when you go and talk to um, a traditional uh, fund manager or a venture investor, and you you look at that, right? We talk about price a lot. We talk about fundraising rounds and all this jazz. 
which is okay. Look, people are obsessed with price. That's fine. It's it's the easiest thing that you can latch onto and say, where's this space going? Is Bitcoin at 100,000? Well, wake me up when it gets there. Or is Bitcoin going to reach a million? People want to know these easy answers to things. But more emphasis is, I find it way more interesting to say, how are you not excited about an industry that is in the last seven, six, seven, eight years that Ethereum has been around? <clears throat> it has become the largest developer community in the world. Not just in crypto, just generally, full stop. Why? Because it's expansive, because it touches so many different use cases. Back then, NFTs weren't even around or were very dormant. Gaming wasn't even a thing. Now, extend that further and all the different applications. We've always felt a generalized smart contract computing platform can do so many things, right? The question is, how do you prioritize it? But it is sort of this chaotic environment. And invariably, when I would talk to large funds or when I would talk to skeptics and say, just contemplate that for a minute and tell me if you're not excited. Because essentially what you're telling me is if you don't believe in this technology, if you don't believe in this movement, I, I'm not asking you to believe in Ethereum versus Solana. I know just full stop. If you don't believe in the aggregate, the crypto as a community, as a, as attracting the smartest minds is not something that you want to be investing behind, then what are you actually investing behind? Because essentially you're shorting human ingenuity and creativity. The smartest people continue to come into the space. It's being expressed in the in, in this data. Increasingly, I was in a, uh, I teach a class every semester. Uh, I get to be a guest lecturer at NYU. And this year I did a survey and maybe I can link to the notes. And it was super encouraging that I, I said, you know, guys, when you started the semester, what was your working knowledge of crypto? You may have heard of it, right? It's like, okay, you probably were considering jobs at, you know, tech unicorns and all this stuff. How has, and the question was, how has your level of interest and how likely are you to go work for a traditional tech startup or a crypto tech startup? And invariably like overwhelming, I think it was like over 90% of the class said, I would at this point in time, much rather go work at a crypto startup versus going to work for try to the Facebook or whatever, right? That's a little unfair because, you know, Facebook has obviously gotten a lot of criticism. I think a lot of people just philosophically don't align with it anymore, but still like Google or, or some of these companies, very attractive, great companies, a lot of perks. And to me, it's just, um, it's very encouraging, right? Uh, that wasn't the case um, a few years ago. I think one of the things that in a perfect world you want to understand is where are these people coming from? Anecdotally, I'll tell you, when I go talk to a lot of teams, the quality of teams, and I think you've noticed it too, Jason, the quality of founders just, in my mind, just keeps getting better and better. I think like two, four, even six years ago, you'd have gotten like, you know, like good engineers, but not the, the best, right? At some of these companies. Now, increasingly, I, I, I'm just investing in a project where this rock star team from Instagram just left. They're obviously very encouraged by what they're seeing in NFTs. They want to build a social media app, talk about social media. And you could just tell, I mean, these are absolute straight killers. Uh, the guy from Gallery came from Apple, right? I mean, Mike, fantastic guy. I mean, just you just know that these guys are not here because they lost their job during COVID. And no, they, they gave up a lot to come to this space because I'll tell you why. The smartest people want to work on hard problems. Crypto is still very encouraging and exciting for the smartest people because smart people want to work with other smart people and want to work on difficult problems. And we haven't figured everything out from a scalability standpoint, from a number of things. I mean, this is a space that's so exciting. So a ramble, but um, I think um, this is one of the pieces that I would always send to any skeptic of this space. And if you're a university, if you're a venture fund, you cannot ignore this. Um, um, full stop. Very much so. I, I mean, I completely echo everything that you just said. Like, here's another chart. 3,000 new developers touch Web3 code every single month. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to run through a couple more here and then just kind of finish what, with what I think is the most important point here. There are, uh, there are several ecosystems that are growing faster than Ethereum at the same stage in its history. That being said, 20 to 25% of new devs each month start on Ethereum. Uh, I think this is really encouraging for all of crypto. This means people are looking at other ecosystems, which then pushes Ethereum to be even better. But still, Ethereum remains the king in the smart contract game. Uh, when you look at the uh, five largest ecosystems, you've got ETH, Bitcoin, uh, Polkadot, Cosmos, and Solana, uh, which I found kind of, found kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, ETH, Polkadot, Cosmos, Solana, and Bitcoin. Here's my take, Santi. My take, this is, I get so excited seeing this info, not because of how many new people are coming in, which obviously is exciting, like you mentioned. Google has over 20,000 developers. Google itself, Google, one single company, one single Web2 company has 20,000 developers. There are 20,000 monthly active developers, not even 20,000 monthly active developers in all of crypto. And look at the output. Look at all of the insane things that have been created with crypto, this massive ecosystem with less developers than one Web2 company has. That is mind-blowing. Yeah, actually, when you put it that way, it is, it is kind, of, kind of mind-blowing. The pro, I, do you, I, I would think that I would attribute that to uh, the composability element of crypto, which is very powerful, right? This idea that you don't have to build and recreate multiple parts of the stack you can plug into. If you're going to build a new DeFi protocol, it's very easy for you to tap into Curve and some of these other pieces to let in AMMs and, and, and money markets to leverage a lot of the things that you don't want to build yourself, right? And so it inherently, I think, increases the productivity of a, of a developer team, right? Which is most of these teams are less than five people, right? I mean, Uniswap has like, for a long time, had less than 20 people. Aave had less than, you know, 50 people. Um, uh, we talked to Antonio from DYDX. You have very lean teams, have a lot of productivity and a lot of profitability. I think it's this is a power composability, which is one of one of if not the killer feature of of Web three, right? This idea that you can tap into a lot of these money Legos or a lot of these protocols without having to recreate that, and I think that increases the productivity of of these developer teams in a very substantial way. And it, of course, combine that with the fact that all of this is open source, you know. And you, I think, built out uh, said it very eloquently. It is this idea that you know you can build upon. Um, and continue to iterate on existing, you build it once and it gets used forever, right? And it gets improved upon. That is the compounding effects of innovation in open source networks is far, far greater versus Google, right? Because Google doesn't share their code or, you know, it's, it's sort of this IP protectiveness. Uh, and I think that slows down the aggregate pace of development of an industry. Uh, but that's not the case in, in these open source systems. Right, exactly. Speaking of open source systems, speaking of composability, let's move on to some DeFi news First things first, Permission DeFi, uh, starting the year off hot, Aave launched Aave Arc. They finally went live. Um, more than 30 financial institutions are now using Aave Arc to access private pools of DeFi liquidity. On one hand, we've talked about this a bunch now, Santi. On one hand, I think this is really interesting. I think this will uh, unlock massive pools of capital. On the other hand, I'm looking at some of the early customers of Aave Arc. Uh, Anubi, Bluefire, which was acquired by Galaxy Digital, uh, Canvas Digital, Celsius, CoinShares, GSR, uh, QCP Capital, Wintermute, Covario. These are all crypto funds uh, and crypto prime brokerages. So, you know, on one hand, I think it's really cool. On the other hand, it doesn't really unlock that much new capital, I'd say. Um, but, you know, I think the argument is that this is these are kind of the early testers of Aave Arc. So, I don't know. Anything... Anything interesting to 
touch on here? No, no. I, I think we should continue to monitor attraction that this of uh, arc um, gets. But yeah, no, I think we summarize it well. Cool. All right, moving on. Um, Yearn Finance, we talked about it before. I think Yearn uh, is pretty interesting. Yearn, uh, the Yearn token jumped uh, a lot over the last week or so. And uh, I think it's up like 50% over the past month following the launch of their buyback program. Uh, the program basically introduces this new tokenomic structure to the protocol, which um, uh, it's kind of just like revamped uh, buyback, like token buybacks and uh, model, which uh, has obviously led to a pretty decent month for Wi-Fi holders. And I think the plan here is to use the protocol fees that they accrue to buy back Wi-Fi off the market, which then makes its way back into the pockets of the Wi-Fi stakers. Uh, and you know those who lock their Wi-Fi will be given even more rewards along with the voting capabilities. So I think this just fits into this early trend of like, A, DeFi kind of 1.0, these big DeFi names. I'm starting to get pretty convinced they're going to have a massive year as more and more people catch on to A, the intrinsic value and B, just the huge total value lock that these protocols possess. But B, it's starting to look like this year is going to be a really wonky innovative, just funky year in general for DeFi as they update a lot of these thing protocols, update their tokenomics and start kind of, you know, doing that thing that we were talking about with the curve wars earlier on. Absolutely. Uh, I think Jiren is, uh, look, they, uh, as you said, it, it, it was the poster child of DeFi summer. Obviously it, it rallied a ton. They were, you know, it's surpassed Bitcoin and made a huge splash. And I think it's been underappreciated for a long time. It's been a lot of development. Uh, I know the Jiren team very well. They're very competent. Some of the smartest developers in the space are building Yearn um, strategies and vaults. And um, you're right. I mean, I think there has been some improvement in the Yearn token economics. Uh, this buy and bake, uh, buy and burn, or buy and uh, this it's called baby proposal. It's by buy and kind of invest, or in this case, or at, at certain points in time, they just started buying uh, a lot of uh, Wi-Fi tokens in the open market. That was very encouraging. That certainly led to the price uh, increase that we saw, or a lot in large part. Um, but the, the interesting point that you mentioned, which is, I think something we should, should monitor is there are a lot of other DeFi protocols that have some optimal token economics and structures. The question will be how easy can you modify these, right? It requires governance in many cases, um, uh, to go through governance, right? And so, um, as you said, uh, how, how easily will it be for some of these protocols to change their token incentives and design, um, and I think the protocols that are, are able to do that are probably the ones that are going to uh, have a reasonably higher probability of succeeding in the long term. Because uh, my my looking at a lot of these and just spending time thinking about value accrual and token economics, most of these token um, kind of models are very early and very suboptimal. And it leaves just a lot of room for improvement, whether it's going to be the old guard, like DeFi kind of early protocols or newer batches of DeFi protocols that look at that and say, no, we're going to do things differently. TBD, right? But, you know, if you're not adapting, and unfortunately, some of these things are codified and not easily changed. And so it is going to be, I think, an interesting thing to observe how easily these can be changed. If not, does it put you at a disadvantage to a newer protocol that comes out much more nimble with improved token design? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes on that. On the NFT side of things, NFTs seem to be off to a hot start Many, many, many big stories. I put down like 15 different things originally, like Eminem buying uh, his first board ape and a dot ETH address, but uh, people can look those up on Twitter. I think the two biggest stories here, 
First one is OpenSea raising $300 million at a $13.3 billion valuation. That is a ludicrous number, $13.3 billion, uh, $300 million raised. The second story is the stolen board apes worth almost $2 million were frozen by OpenSea. Where do you want to start? Well, on OpenSea, I will say this, right? Uh, in my predictions, I said, okay, we, we, I think close the year with, depending on how you cut the data, but like at least 15 billion of NFT volume that I saw that I dropped a lot of that. Most of that I think happened in OpenSea. Uh, okay. Some in, in, in Larva labs, like their own marketplace, but a lot of it largely OpenSea. When you think about, um, the market cap, for instance, of Etsy, which is, um, you know, a, a e-commerce company allows for artists, creators to sell their stuff. You know, they, their, their market cap is 23 billion. It's a publicly traded company. Um, you know, obviously they're attacking a different market, but okay. That I think is a reasonable comp. So when you think, okay, OpenSea is doing similar, like quite a bit of volume, um, at the pace of things are growing, you could see a path towards this, maybe potentially capturing, you know, 50 billion of, of G of turnover, if you will, uh, volume in a year. I mean, is it unreasonable to raise a 13 billion? I don't know. You tell me, but I mean, you're looking at something like Etsy trading at 23, 24 billion market cap. Then all of a sudden, some of the, these numbers don't start sounding. I think you just put it in perspective like that, and I think yep. it makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. High growth, profitable, nimble team. You know, in a in NFTs that are going to totally transform, you know, uh, e-commerce and you know, uh, um, you know, art markets and all this stuff. And you know, it's all of a sudden it doesn't doesn't sound too ludicrous to me. Yeah, I guess eBay's market cap too, like forty million. Yeah, exactly. Forty billion. You mean? 40 billion. Yeah, 40 billion. I guess the revenue is high too, right? Like they did, um, I think they did like three and a half billion worth of sales last month, which is roughly like 80 to 90 million in revenue in a month. It's not too shabby. So um, I think that more interesting story here is uh, speaking of OpenSea, I think Open. So what happened here is like uh, with these stolen board apes got frozen with OpenSea, there's this. Uh, there's this uh, guy who runs an art gallery. His name's Todd Kramer. He uh, tweeted out that he got, clicked on a link that appeared to be a genuine like NFT dap, uh, but it turns out it was a phishing attack. He got hacked. All his apes were gone. Uh, and OpenSea actually stepped in, froze the apes, and helped him get the, uh, get the apes back. And actually, a lot of the Twitter community took a different stance and said, you know, this is this is crypto, right? Like this feels pretty anti-crypto to be asking third parties to do this. Ideally, they shouldn't be able to, uh, is what a lot of, felt like a lot of the you know community was saying, uh, that kind of true decentralized ownership uh, means no one should be able to step in. I think this fits with what we were talking about last week, which is in the predictions, which is, you know, OpenSea is going to see some massive competition this year. Coinbase launching their NFT platform. FTX has the NFT platform already live. You're going to see geographically specific OpenSea platforms pop up and get a ton of venture money. Uh, but I also think the biggest thing that for some reason not many people are talking about is just like, when are we getting the Uniswap of NFT marketplaces, right? When are we getting the first decentralized NFT marketplace that really goes mainstream in the same way that Uniswap did that for DeFi? I mean, you could argue that OpenSea is mainstream. Um... I think what you truly mentioned is a truly permission protocol. Now, of course, Uniswap, to be fair, um, their front end or, you know, is, is different, right? I mean, they, they, I think they're tracking now your IP address. They've uh, unlisted, 
last year they unlisted in their front end at least the ability to trade certain particular synthetic products like synths because it was you know they just felt uncomfortable given the regulatory guidance and so look uh is there a opportunity for a truly truly permissionless uh marketplace absolutely always will be the question is the experience of DeFi is a little bit different than uh, nfts nfts are just you know look there's a lot of value that is being exchanged absolutely but it's more retail it's more you know i think finance requires a much more higher degree of like neutral like a i don't know it's just to me it feels like this is largely very retail and retail wants the ability to call 1-800 number and have customer support and i think you get that much more so in a protocol like OpenSea than any other uh than a truly decentralized version of this like like the question it goes back to this idea like should we truly be decent you know like back in the day like in 2017 like oh let's decentralize airbnb and uber i'm like guys i don't think you want to do that like imagine you showing up in your in your host at two in the morning and <laughs> who are you going to call like satoshi like devs do something like <laughs> like there's nothing to do right um but uh sometimes there is a healthy degree of of centrality or uh, from a team that can provide some customer support now should they be freezing this board apes you know uh i take the stance that you know if it was, if you can prove that it was a hack and they have the ability to do that yeah like i mean it's nice to do that i guess um it's not nice if someone can freeze your you know all of your tvl and Ave <laughs> or all your pools and uniswap and not so much right yeah yeah, very much so. All right, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on this uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, getting into, I mean, <laughs> decentralized uh, Uber and Airbnb. Uh, actually, your friends over at Allen Howard and Tiger Global just invested twenty million. So I think we're gonna do a quick section on just the institutional capital coming coming in. Uh, Allen Howard, uh, Allen Howard, and Tiger Global invested in LivePeer. LivePeer is building a decentralized video streaming network. Uh, usually we wouldn't talk about raises of this size, um, $20 million series B1, B1 round. Um, I just thought it was very interesting that uh, after DCG invested back in July, uh, you've got Alan Howard and Tiger Global both coming into the space. And, you know, they're, uh, I think it was their CEO, uh, who is it, Doug Pet Petconics, told uh, one of our reporters at BlockWorks, the next TikTok scaled application is likely to emerge from crypto primitives um so we'll see i don't know decentralized video streaming i think i mean we'll pay attention to if that gets big or not but i think the real story here is alan howard and tiger global coming into not by bitcoin not just by eth but fund a pretty crypto native company agreed and not to mention the interest in uptick in, in social applications and of course underpinning that think about like something like tiktok video is a big part of social these days a lot of engagement and it requires um video streaming so that's, I think, the thesis that they're seeing, like core infrastructure for, um, you know, video, uh, for social applications in a Web3 context. Yep. Following the Goldman stuff about Bitcoin taking market share from gold as store of value, Ray Dalio coming out saying 2% of a portfolio in Bitcoin is reasonable. Uh, I think it's interesting following, uh, I've got a book, I've got another book alert, uh, which is Ray Dalio's book, Principles for Dealing with with the changing world order, why nations succeed and fail. I'm only about 20% of the way through. I just started it last week. Uh, it is a 
this thing is a marketing campaign for Bitcoin. Uh, if you believe Bitcoin is a good store of value, really interesting conversation. Honestly, pretty pessimistic about the United States. Uh, and so I think it's interesting that Ray Dalio's conclusion here is not that gold and other inflation hedged assets are the thing to buy, but that, you know, it's worth putting 2% of your portfolio in Bitcoin. I assume this number goes higher and that he comes out by the end of year and says maybe 5 to 10% might be reasonable. No, absolutely. Look, Jason, I, I think like uh, Dalio, when I first heard him say cash is trash in Davos a couple of years ago, I said... <laughs> Why don't you just go out and say like some that that just screams to me underpinning that like the case for Bitcoin or or Ethereum or some other store value, um, and he he it, it sort of felt like he he didn't finish like it was just halfway through the it, it, thinking and it eventually it all paths all roads lead to Rome in this case Bitcoin or you know another store value in digital context like Ethereum or Solana or whatever but uh, it's it's good uh, candidly now to see. A lot of his thinking has always felt very much aligned with the Bitcoin camp. Um, and now, you know, it's good to see, I think it was last year where he first came out saying that he, he came around uh, Bitcoin. Um, and and so um, I think I agree with you that 2% number, I would assume, would continue to grow in a, in a, in a pretty healthy way. Yeah, exactly. Um... Quick grab bag, and we can wrap this up. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, one uh, backed Wonderfy acquires Bitbuy. Um, let's see. Well, how much was this deal for? One hundred and sixty million dollars. Uh, yeah, Wonderfy acquired Canadian crypto exchange Bitbuy. Uh, you can find the news on Blockworks in a deal for one hundred and sixty-one point eight million in cash and shares. Um, I don't know. Kevin O'Leary pushing pretty heavy into uh, into crypto here. I think, uh, I don't know, not not super interesting in my opinion, but just interesting to see Kevin O'Leary, who was very anti-crypto less than two years ago, completely 180. And now he's acquiring companies in the space. So, Mr. Wonderful, coming into a wonderful space. Mr. Wonderful, coming on the podcast. That's our alert. Um, yeah, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, coming on the podcast uh, soon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, next thing that I thought was interesting is Brian Chesky, uh, CEO of Airbnb. Speaking of uh, Airbnb from 10 minutes ago, he's tweeted out, if Airbnb could launch anything in 2022, what would it be? I think the most interesting thing is the facilitation of house swaps. Uh, the crypto community disagrees with me. Uh, he got over 4,000 suggestions. The number one suggestion was crypto payments. Not that I think crypto payments is the most interesting thing here. What I think the most interesting thing here is just politicians and web two CEOs and founders are waking up to how powerful the crypto community is and that you want to appeal. Uh, I think, I think people are honestly pretty shocked and surprised by how big the crypto community is. Um, right. 4,000 suggestions. Crypto payments is number one. You see politicians these days more and more starting to appeal to the crypto crowd on Twitter. Uh, I think they're waking up to just how big and how powerful this community really is. Agreed. Yeah, generally, I, I, I agree with you. Like the, the ability to pay with stablecoins seems like an inevitable, like uh, something that could easily be rolled out and remove a lot of friction. Yeah. So um, last thing here, big shout out to LinksDAO. Uh, shout out Mike Dudas, a uh, good friend at LinksDAO. NFT booked over $10 million towards buying an actual golf course. Um, yeah, if you guys are golfers, I'd recommend checking out LinksDAO. I, I mean... I think it's kind of interesting. It's like just these DAOs are raising a boatload of money really quickly. 
um, to do interesting things and just bring people together. So I don't think this is like the most innovative thing in the world, but I think it's uh, it's pretty cool just seeing the Dow, the Dow trend continue. All right, guys, Santi, I know your Wi-Fi is puttering around here, so we will uh, we will wrap this up. It's kind of a short roundup this week to uh, to start 2022. Keep Santiago honest is the theme of this roundup. If he doesn't do something to uh, to bring back and to uh, to show to show off how uh, how sorry he is for not showing face on this roundup, we will keep you honest, Santi. Definitely, sir. Yes, and apologies for for this. Uh, I will come back in full force next week. We got a lot of really good lineups, a lot of good content. I'm excited, my friend, uh, about what's ahead. And look, just to round it out, um, you know, the first week of the year, markets are, you know, for everyone new to the space. I think, you know, it's it's a good, I'd rather start the year this way. As much, mas- I don't want to sound like a masochist, but, but I think it is important for people to come into the space. A lot of people are really excited. It's like, listen, it is important to understand. It's a very volatile asset class. It is in price discovery mode. If it and this is just a testament, it is so early. If it weren't early, it wouldn't have this amount of volatility. The fact that we continue to have this volatility, it is further corroborates our view that it is quite early. And so take it, look at it from that perspective, and you know, <clears throat> uh, focus on go out and read the developer report from uh, Electric Capital. You look at that. You can't. It, it, you cannot walk away not being excited uh, about this stuff. And so <clears throat> there's a really good uh, the, the year. I continue to think. Um, we are in a in a secular trend. Technology is the only thing that has ever gotten us out of any macro mess. And I think that's the solution to always. So you always want to be long technology. And I think if you look at the developer report, you invariably come to the conclusion that this is probably, if not one of the most exciting sectors of technology. And everything that we've talked about in this podcast and prior podcasts suggests that large investors are increasingly waking up. And this is a trend that is not going to slow down, in my opinion. So even if it slows down, my friend, I will also stake, even if we're in a terrible bear market, it's always a possibility. We will continue to do these episodes. Whether people like it or not, that is our commitment. That's exactly right. Cool. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. We will see you next week on Empire.